0: Welcome to Cry My Caffeine. I'm your host Erica, and I'm your host Allison.
1: Thank you so much for listening to another episode. <laughs>
0: okay, this is <laughs> this is so weird. So we are trying something out today. We are recording remotely because I'm in Chicago and Allison is home. But I am moving in oh a few weeks. God, I'm so sad. So I know. I know. She'll be back. So we're She'll testing be back. this out. I will be back. We will be doing episodes together. I might even record some video if you guys want that. Let us know because we don't know if you guys would want that, but yeah. we're curious. We're basically just
1: looking at each other right now on video, but we just didn't record <laughs> with the video because I'm not going to lie. We are not looking our best. <laughs>
0: No, no, you don't want to see me right now. <laughs> but I want to start making TikToks, so let us know if you guys would be interested in something like that, you know, when oh. when like the person stands in front of the picture and they kind of just like explain the case. Yes, I get served those pretty often. Mm-hmm. Same. Yeah, I would be down to do that. So if you guys want to see those, let us know. But yeah, so this to- is going to be a little different, but we're hoping it's it's the same. And it's not because my Wi-Fi just froze.
1: No, you sound fine. Okay. 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 Guys, today we be sipping on two different coffees because we don't know how to sip on the same coffee if we're not (laughs) in the same place.
0: (laughs) We'll plan better, but we sipping remotely today.
1: We be sipping on... Well, me, I'm sipping on a local coffee here. It's from Newport Ritchie, Florida. At least that's the one that I go to. It's called White Duck Espresso. And I... Honestly, I only went there in the first place because it was called White Duck, and I thought it was really cool. I'm not kidding. It's literally a shack in the middle of an abandoned parking lot. <laughs> that sounds like an <laughs> Yes, but the line is always like exponentially long. It's crazy. But today, I was feeling something sweet. I took a page out of Erica's book, got me a sweet coffee. I did their white chocolate macadamia
0: nut with caramel drizzle and hooey. Yeah, I'm a little upset I'm not there because it looks really good. I'm also sipping on a local coffee. I have the Chicago French Press Snickerdoodle coffee. And the packaging is really cute and tastes really good and it's gluten-free and vegan. So you should definitely get your hands on some if you live in Chicago, or even if you don't live in Chicago, you can order it offline. I was about to say, bring me back some. (laughs) I will. I will. We just wanted to give a huge shout out to my best friend, Morgan. She bought us like 16,000 coffees. And we just want to say that we love you so much because you have always supported us and she'd be listening at work. She'd be telling people to listen. She'd be posting us on her story. She'd be buying us coffees. So thank you, Morgan. I love you. We love you. And you're amazing. We are here today for part three of Ariel Castro Cleveland kidnappings. We've never done a part three. No, this is our first three parter. I know. And I think this is my
1: favorite part. So I'm really excited. I have been waiting for this part because I need to know what the hell is going on in this man's brain and mm-hmm. just just
0: why, sir, why? Yeah. So we left off. So last time in part two, we had all three girls. So we had Michelle, we had Amanda, and we had Gina all staying in the house. You know, Amanda was his wife and she gave birth to his child. And that's kind of when the dynamic in the house started to change. As time went on, the rules kind of were lifted, or well, the chains were lifted figuratively and literally, but we left off with their escape on May 6, 2013, when Amanda and Jocelyn were able to get the police there and the girls were found. So today... I wasn't really planning on this being like too big of an episode. I was like, all right, we're going to talk about the court case real quick. Quick psychological profile. Didn't really think it would be a thing, but oh my God, I went down a rabbit hole of information. I kind of split it into little sections. So we have a lot to talk about today and it's going to be wild.
1: Getting the live updates of you doing your research for this part has been so funny. She literally has been texting me like, okay, I thought this was going to be short, but um, I think it might be kind of long. And uh, then I found this and then I found that. I'm
0: excited. Just, just you wait. Me too. Part three. Here we go. So the day after they were found, Amanda, Jocelyn and Gina were all able to go home, but Michelle was way too sick. So she had to stay in the hospital She was about 80 pounds at this point, which when she was originally abducted, she was 130, 135. So she's 50 pounds less than she was when she was abducted 11 years prior. Oh my God. Mm -hmm. Her jaw was severely injured. She had major nerve damage in her arms, and she also had a bacterial infection that was eating away at her stomach.
1: Oh my God.
0: Yeah. So I'm wondering if that had anything to do with like the corn dog, mustard, her being sick for two weeks and just like her being in so much pain. I wonder if it was because of that infection. Oh yeah. I didn't even think about that. I know. And like, think of in 11 years. Okay. (laughs) This is just me, but like, I have a lot of things wrong with me every year. I feel like I go to the doctor a lot. Imagine all the things that could have been wrong with you, especially after everything that she went through physically. Uh, I can't even imagine how many things were probably wrong with her. Yeah. In 11 years. And
1: I am a little concerned that you do go to the doctor that much. We should probably get that under control.
0: Um, I have health insurance now, so we are trying.
1: (laughs) That's good. That's a start.
0: (laughs) We kind of already knew this, but they told her that she was infertile just because of how many times she'd miscarried and all the trauma that her body was put under when he forced her to miscarry. Don't really want to get into all that, but please. she finally was, yeah, sorry, no problem. <laughs> so she finally left the hospital after about four days. So on May 10th, um, and she was then set to live in an assisted living facility, just kind of like get her on her feet. And she'd been gone from society for 11 years. So she probably didn't really know what was going on. And 2013 is very different from 2002. She learned how they escaped from the police because obviously Amanda and Jocelyn had gotten the police, and the girls had no idea what happened. The police just entered the house and they were like, All right. So here's basically what happened. Police gave her the tea. Amanda realized Castro was gone when she came downstairs that morning and that he left the inner front door locked. There was a chain, but it's still open enough for her to be able to put her arm through it. So she was screaming and waving for neighbors to help and. She was able to go across the street to a neighbor's house and call the cops. This neighbor's name was Charles Ramsey, and he's famous because of this, and he wrote an entire book over this. An entire book. Really? Go read it. Great man. So this is where we're going to insert the 911 call.
2: Leave a (laughs) 911 Police, fire, or ambulance. I need police. Okay, and what's going on there? I've been kidnapped and I've been missing for ten years, and I'm I'm here. I'm free now. Okay, and what's your address? Uh <laughs> call me for <from> Huh? <laughs> like you I can't hear you. It looks like you're calling me from. Okay, stay there with those neighbors. Talk to the police when they get there. Okay. uh, Okay. Talk to the police when they get there. Okay. Hello. Yeah, talk to the police when they get there. Okay, I to wait right now. We're gonna send them as soon as we get a car open. No, I need them now before we get back. All right, we're sending them. Okay. Okay. I mean, like, who's the guy? Who's the guy you're? uh, Who's the guy who went out? Um, his name. All right, how old okay. is he? Uh, he's like fifty-two. <laughs> All right, and I'm uh, uh, Amanda Berry. I've been on the news for the last 10 years. Okay, I got, I got that here. What's I Gina? already. <laughs> and uh, you said, what was his name again? And is he white, black, or same? I am going What's he wearing? I don't know, cause he's not here right now. That's and when how he, I he left, what, when he left, what was he wearing? So yeah, it's a pity. What? Right, the police are on the way. Talk to okay. them when they get there. Okay? Uh, I need, okay. I told you they're on the way. Talk to them when they get there, okay? All right, okay. Thank you. Bye.
0: So the police found Castro in a McDonald's parking lot. Shocker. <laughs> this man and his McDonald's all he eats all he knows he made pasta like one time though his family had no idea what he'd been doing for all these years he, they arrested him and he was with his two brothers so they arrested them too even though they had no idea what was going on so they were cleared so this is kind of Mich- what Michelle thought about you know them being able to escape and him kind of getting lazy with locking them up but she said in hindsight I think the dude wanted to get caught his whole world was crumbling he lost his job I could tell he was fed up with his life which we kind of talked about that last episode. It was so true. He literally had nothing at this point, no job. And I was reading some things, uh, some notes from his attorneys and things like that. And they were just talking about how he was kind of coming to terms with the fact that he couldn't really hide this from baby Jocelyn for very much longer. She was getting older. She was going to understand what was going on. And like, he couldn't hide her from the world. There was no way he would be able to go on with this.
1: I don't even know how he kept it this long with how many. I know. Like 11
0: years? How how in the freaking world? 11 years and how many times did the police come and not do anything? That's what I'm saying. Why? Why? It just makes me so mad. So mad. But he was charged with four counts of kidnapping and three counts of rape originally. And they were like, <clears throat> In July of 2016, he pled guilty to 937 crimes, which included rape, assault, and murder. He was given life in prison with no chance of parole, plus an extra thousand years. You know, just in case he keeps kicking.
1: (laughs) (laughs) In case he decides all that McDonald's is like making him immortal somehow.
0: (laughs) So he tried to use that same guilt trip that he used on the girls. Like he was saying, I was addicted to porn. I was abused as a kid. It's not my fault. Um, He even said in court, people are trying to paint me as a monster and I'm not a monster. I'm sick. No, you're a monster. (laughs) You're fine, and we don't feel bad for you, and pardon my French, but fuck off. Yeah, yep, yep. I wholeheartedly agree with that statement. And he also tried to say that the sex was consensual and that there was, quote, harmony in the house. No, no. No, there wasn't. (laughs) The level of delusion. I don't understand. That's also such a slap in the face of those girls. Right? So um, Amanda and Gina made statements, but they went through their attorneys, but Michelle decided to actually testify in person in court. This was her statement. I'm not going to go through the entire statement because it's three pages long and like I know you guys aren't going to listen, but we will have it up on the website if you do want to look at it. It'll be in our sources, but basically Michelle stood up and she just said, I want to tell you what 11 years of my life was like. And she opened up with losing her son and just worrying about him and how the days turned into years and how Christmas was the most traumatic day of her life. She talked about how she and Gina had to stay as a team. And then she started to speak directly to Ariel Castro. She said, I remember all the times you came home talking about everyone else that did someone wrong. You acted like you weren't doing anything wrong. You said, at least I didn't kill you. You took 11 years from my life, but I've got my life back. I spent 11 years in hell. Now your hell is just beginning. I will overcome all that happened, but you're going to face hell for eternity. From this moment on, I am not going to let you define me or affect who I am. I will live on, but you will die a little more inside each day as you think of those 11 years and the atrocities you inflicted on us. What does God think of you hypocritically going to church each Sunday and then coming home to torture us? The death penalty would be the easy way out. You don't deserve that. We want you to spend the rest of your life in prison. I can forgive you, but I'll never forget. With God's guidance, I'll prevail and help other victims who may have suffered at the hands of another. So Amanda's sister gave her statement, and then um, Gina's cousin gave her statement, and then There were a few other statements from the attorneys and their families and obviously very emotional, but I think it was definitely really good that Michelle was able to face him in person and everything that she said was spot on. And I liked the part where she called him out for going to church. I am always screaming out. like I'm over here like, oh my God, yes, read him. Go off. She read him to Phil. That was probably a great moment being able to say those things to him. Unfortunately, this dude was just going to continue being the worst possible human being, if you want to call him that, on the face of the earth. Because one month into his sentencing, he committed suicide. He was found hanging in his cell from like his bed sheet with his pants down at his ankles. There was a lot of speculation regarding his death, which we will get into. But we're just going to talk about a couple other things first. Um, I'm sure you guys have some questions about Joey. I feel like that was like the biggest question. Um, He had been adopted by a great family when he was four. Um, unfortunately they weren't ready to have Michelle see him yet I don't really know what's going on currently but they sent her she wrote them letters and they sent her like some pictures and things like that and kind of like a letter like explaining and she was totally cool about it she totally understood and she was just really happy that he was given a great life oh
1: I'm glad that he has a good life but
0: I really want them to be able to see each other again that's like all she wanted they sent her pictures of him with sports equipment and she got to see how like athletic she was and she was so excited just to kind of like see, you know, what he was into. Cause she only was with him until he was two and a half. So it's not like he developed personality or anything yet. I think it was bittersweet for her. So the House of Horrors, which is what they called Ariel Castro's home, was torn down on August seventh, twenty thirteen. They found twenty-two thousand dollars in cash that he had stored away in the basement. For what, McDonald's? He was saving. He was budgeting. <laughs> Two for three <laughs> <for free> McDonald's. <laughs> they found, so they found that money. Uh, they offered it to the girls, but all three of them turned it down, and they asked for it to be put towards improving the neighborhood, which is awesome. That's awesome. And I, Michelle was talking about how she just would have felt so dirty taking that money, which I totally understand. So I think it definitely went to a great purpose. So as for Michelle's other family members, she did not hear a thing from her father after getting out and not in like a bad way, but in like a, she did not know where he was. She didn't even know if he was alive. As for her mother, mm -mm -mm, I have things I want to say, but I was about to say,
1: do I even want to (laughs) know?
0: All I got to say is not a fan of her mom. Her mom was kind of, while Michelle was missing, her mom was going to the press and pretty much lying about Michelle's childhood and trying to say that it wasn't what it was, which we all know what it was. If we listen to part one, if you haven't, go listen. Um, but so she was telling lies about her childhood and Michelle obviously came out and said, actually, this is my childhood. So then her mom released a statement through her lawyer and said that Michelle was lying and that her point of view had been altered because of everything that she went through. no. I hate her. So messed up. So like, obviously, while Michelle's missing and she was saying that she had this great childhood, she's like pleading, pleading for her to come home. Like, sister, you did not care about her ever. Like, you just want your your little moment in the press. So Michelle does not speak to her to this day. That's messed up. Well,
1: they shouldn't speak because she
0: doesn't deserve that relationship with her daughter. So this is the part that you were waiting for. We are going to get into the background on the dude, Ariel Castro. So he was born on July 10th, 1960 in Puerto Rico to Pedro Castro and Lillian Rodriguez. They weren't there for too long. While he was in Puerto Rico, he was sexually abused and raped by a neighbor who was nine years old and he was five years old. So he never reported the abuse and it lasted for about a year. His parents divorced and he and his mother and his siblings moved to the United States when he was six. So literally right as the abuse stopped, I'm pretty sure the abuse stopped because he moved. They first moved to Pennsylvania before settling in Cleveland where Castro's father and other family members lived. He was physically abused by his mother, so hey, apple doesn't fall far from the tree. <laughs> I was about to say. So, he graduated from Lincoln West High School in 1979. He was a below average student, got poor grades. He was suspended in middle school for touching a girl's breasts. That's assault, and brother. He, it is. It's assault, brother. He was teased a lot in school and was often in trouble for fighting. There's a part in Michelle's book where he opens up to her about why he was teased and we might have touched on it but this was also his reasoning for why he was racist oh god um i don't want to mispronounce anything because i know people get really really upset about that and i don't want to act like a teenage girl so i'm going to look up the pronunciation and be right back damn
1: called out we did get a one star review because we openly <laughs> don't know how to pronounce things which I don't find those. we always look it up though, out of respect.
0: And we always say we don't want to mispronounce this out of respect.
1: Literally. Then whoever left the review had the nerve, the gall, the audacity to say that we had the commentary of teenage girls. My brother, I am 28 years old. I'm 25, but I absolutely resonate as
0: a teenage girl. You think I'm a teenage girl? Then so be it. I'm young. (laughs) So so, um, anyway, Castro met his girlfriend, Grimilda Figueroa. He met her in the 80s, and they moved into that Seymour house in 1992. So this is where things got really bad. He started beating her, breaking her nose, ribs, arms, and causing a blood clot in her brain that ultimately led to an inoperable tumor. No. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's so bad. So even after they did surgery on her brain like to see if they could do anything about it, he would still hit her in the head. Because he's a terrible human monster. He also threw her down a flight of stairs, cracking her skull. He was arrested for domestic violence in 1993, but was not indicted. And
1: maybe, you know, just maybe, we should have taken that experience, you know, held on to it, and if somebody was calling about suspicious behavior to his home multiple times. We should have taken that experience. We should have gathered it and we should have gone in the damn house. Can I get an amen?
0: Amen. Thank you. Yeah, he was given way too many slaps on the wrist and that should never be plural. He would kick her in the stomach when she got pregnant, just like he did to the girls. And in 1994, he was arrested for domestic violence, but it was dropped because she didn't show up to the court hearing. And it was later stated that he bribed her and threatened her. So obviously she wasn't going to show up. This guy had already done all this stuff to her. She clearly believed he would kill her. Luckily, she was able to move out in 1996, being granted custody of their four children. He would continue to threaten and attack her after this. So after she moved out and was continuing to be attacked, she met her boyfriend. His name was Fernando. He was giving statements about, what had happened to her as well. So he said that Castro would keep her tied up in their basement and whipped her with dog chains. You can kind of see where everything he did to those three girls was coming from.
1: How could he even say that he's not a monster? I do How could he even say it with a straight face, too? He's like, no, no, not me.
0: And I understand, like, maybe contributing aspects of your personality to past trauma, but, like, I'm sorry, someone abusing you when you were a kid did not cause you to chain your wife, girlfriend up in the basement and whip her with dog chains there. there, No, but the reason Fernando met her and constantly saw her was because he worked as security at the hospital that she would always come to. And so he offered to have her stay with him and his parents. And so she did. They had a child together and Castro was so mad about this that he accused Fernando of molesting their daughters in 2004 Oh, my God. So, so, yes, this is while he had those girls held captive. This was going on. Oh, my God. I didn't even put two two
1: and two together. Mm -hmm. Whoa. Yeah.
0: Oh, my God. He can literally eat dirt. Luckily, in court, when he went to trial for this, Castro's son, Anthony, said that this was a complete lie, which, thank God that he said that because Castro bribed his daughters with gifts if they lied in court. And so I think, one, they were scared. Two, he bribed them. And three, it's their dad, you know? It's like when you're a child, you don't think that your dad, you would never think your dad would be this monster. You're going to listen to your dad. So they were super vague about it in court because I don't think they wanted to, like, blatantly come out and be like, yeah, yeah, he did this and this and that and that because obviously it wasn't true. They kind of were just like, yeah, he touched us. Very, very vague. And he even tried to bribe his ex to lie. Why would she lie? why why do you why think would that's why you did the same That's thing for her, her boyfriend and those are her kids why she said nah I don't <laughs> need anything from you no bad get away Fernando was acquitted on most of the charges he was originally indicted on 28 counts of rape kidnapping and molestation get out yeah unfortunately he was still convicted of four counts of gross sexual imposition and sentenced to three years of community service and he was forced to register as a sex offender no. You're literally ruining someone's life, and they never did anything. That's so messed up. Oh, get this. This is going to make you so mad. So as this was happening, and the police were like, oh, he's involved with these girls, he was questioned by the police as to whether or not he had anything to do with the girls that were missing. And guess what he said? He what? said, He said, no, I don't, but you should really look into Ariel Castro.
1: Yeah. No. Mm-mm. No. And, I then, go. and, then, and they never did. And they never did. Listen to me. And they never did. They never went in that house. And they had so many reasons to go into that house. So many reasons. So many reasons. And in the words of the wonderful drag queen, Tatiana, they made a choice.
0: Choices. Choices. Throughout history, the Cleveland Police Department have made many choices. Choices. And I don't think a lot of them were good. Fernando said, I absolutely thought that I was going to win. It was heartbreaking for me because I knew my life practically was over. So I was really upset and hurt at the same time. This dude, you get involved with one woman all of a sudden. Your whole life's ruined. So they broke up right after the trial. She moved with the kids to Indiana, and he was unable to get a job after this because he was a registered sex offender. Nobody wanted to hire him.
1: Well, yeah. His he did do ruined. it. He didn't do it. I know.
0: You don't have to yell at me. Yell at somebody else. In 2005, she filed charges after he beat her when she was recovering from that brain surgery that we were talking about. And so while this was happening, Emily got on his back and was like stabbing him with a pencil. So she was saying that he caused multiple severe injuries and frequently abducted their daughters. She said that he threatened to kill her like three to four times over the past year. So like from 2004 to 2005, she was granted a temporary restraining order. But it was dismissed after a few months. Castro tried to blame her for the abuse, saying that he was defending himself, saying that she would hit him first, and so then he would hit back. Okay. (laughs) I I don't really think that that explains a lot of it. I don't think it does. Sure. Whatever your delusional little brain wants to tell you, buddy. And then, unfortunately, she died in 2012 from complications due to the brain tumor. So we are going to talk about his kids a little bit more. Some interesting stuff that I had no idea about. I think this is when I texted you. Castro's son, Anthony, remembers living in a household terrorized by his father. He watched his mother abused and tortured, and he even suffered abuse at the hands of his father as well. So it wasn't just the mom who was being abused. I don't think there was ever any sexual abuse, but... This is some crazy shit. So, you know, Emily, the main daughter that he used to abduct the girls. Yes. So she is currently serving a 25 year prison sentence for slashing her infant daughter's throat in 2007. Wait a second. What? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. She was 19 when this happened. So 2006, she had a baby. Her baby daddy was like trying to leave her, break up with her. I don't know. I guess she began to have super paranoid delusions, things like that. Something was out of whack with her brain. And she was really paranoid that her mom and her sisters were having an affair with her boyfriend. I think she slashed the daughter's throat four times. And then afterwards, she stabbed herself in the neck and then slashed her wrists and tried to drown herself in a river. So the baby survived she survived. And then at the trial, her mom testified saying that, you know, she'd been super paranoid and had paranoid thoughts lately. And so Emily tried to use the insanity plea, but she was found competent to stand trial. She was found guilty, but mentally ill in 2008 because she had a history of depression and being inconsistent with medications, which inconsistency of taking those medications is probably what was causing the psychosis or the paranoia. And I don't know if she was having psychosis when this happened, but clearly she was very paranoid. Um, so Emily said that he never abused her or this or her sisters. And he was super protective, weirdly protective. He was always insisting that they cover up and he even made them wear underwear when they showered. Okay. And I'm like, is that for you or is that for him? He wasn't protective. He was a fucking weirdo. His other daughter, Angie, also recalls accounts of Castro's shadiness. He would never want to go on family vacations because he wouldn't want to leave his house, obviously, because he has some girls up in it. He wouldn't let the girls see their childhood bedrooms in the house. And they were just like, okay, it's probably just because he's super messy and gross. It's his man cave, whatever. She also recalls him playing music very loudly when she was there. Because remember he would do that when he had guests over. Yes. Yeah. So that's really freaky, just them knowing like they had been in the house and all of these things were going on with their family. Meanwhile, he's holding three girls hostage in his in his home, in the home that they used to live in as a family. I'm
1: so, so shook. Everything that you just said, I'm just trying to process it.
0: I know. I had no idea. And I'm glad I found it in my research, too, because like, that's so crazy. I am not well. No. Okay, so let's get into... Everybody's favorite part, the the psychological profile and the mental health of the dude, Ariel Castro. So here are the key characteristics of Ariel Castro and his behavior. He's what is referred to as a batterer. He's a sexual sadist. He's a sociopath. And he also exhibits uh, characteristics of antisocial personality. I'm going to take you guys through my research because I did the dang thing on Google Scholar, you know. Hey, we being scholarly up in here. Dr. Paul W. Reagan is the medical director of New Life Lodge, a drug and alcohol treatment center in Burns, Tennessee. He was the one who was speaking about batterers. So this was talking about how men who are 90% of the cases who are bent on the total control of a woman using psychological and physical abuse, they're the ones who are termed batterers. Okay. So this isn't just like, you know, battery. This is like the act of using psychological and physical abuse in order to control women. There have been many studies on batterers looking at the presence or the absence of drugs and alcohol, if the violence is intrafamilial or if it extends beyond the family, the presence and absence of criminality, so committing other crimes, and the presence and absence of psychopathology, including personality disorders. just want that to paint a picture. There's a lot that goes into it. And obviously there's a lot that goes into Castro's pathology. So we see him evolving from intrafamilial battery of his wife to the control and tortures of the girls outside of his family. Clearly it's starting within the family. He's gaining that confidence. He's like, this isn't enough for me. I feel like I'm confident enough to move on. I can gain control of these people. It'll be more fun for me. It'll be more exciting. This can be explained by sociopathy, his use of charm to lure the girls into his vehicle and the knowledge of how to break each girl down psychologically and physically. I mean, he knew exactly how to break Michelle down. He was telling her all the time, you're ugly, you have no one, no one cares about you, no one's looking for you. And obviously this did hurt her because she knew it was true, but she was strong enough to know better than to let him know that that was hurting her. So I think that's why he hated her so much. Male batterers often grow up in violent, abusive homes, which was the case for Castro. Like we talked about before, he recalls being abused by his mom and he was raped for about a year while living in Puerto Rico. The lack of care he was given as a child prevented him from developing a healthy, mature adult ego. So he was left with an impaired sense of self and feelings of low self-esteem and adequacy, convincing himself that he'd be unable to attract a mate without physical force and manipulation. This combined with his lack of empathy or remorse, his violent tendencies, and his anger issues led to his horrid crimes and abuse of the women in his life. Though his crimes against these three innocent women are crimes so beyond these characteristics that they may warrant another diagnosis or reasoning entirely, including a personality defined by sadism. So Dr. Paul Reagan was kind of trying to say that what he did was so bad that it's a category beyond being a batterer. And they were saying that his personality, like he had a disorder that was literally based upon sadism. So last time I checked the DSM, that wasn't a thing, but that's what they're saying is that this is so different and so beyond what they've seen that this whole disorder is characterized by this. He also said that his ability to be completely normal and give off no indication of his wrongdoings in the public eye was a clear characteristic of his antisocialist tendencies he was going to work, he was doing the thing. He was having all of this stuff going on with his family like he had like a band. He was band. still doing this. He yeah, he bunch had a band of shit going on. He had so much going on. So that's just insane to think about. He did meet with a few psychologists throughout the trial and while he was being held in prison. He told one of them that he had suffered with depression and headaches with disorientation and confusion in like the 1980s. He was never diagnosed with any mental illness, so Whether or not that's true, there's no official diagnosis, and he said it was only in the 80s. Dr. Mark Levy said, though his attorneys claimed Castro had undiagnosed mental illness that was responsible for his crimes, Dr. Levy said that he did show signs of sociopathic behavior. He said, it's a rambling denial of responsibility, even though he takes responsibility. It's a failure to appreciate the breadth and depth of his crimes. It's a lot of rationalizing, including the convenient, I'm addicted to porn which, you know, that's his reasoning. He seems very concerned about his image. His whole identity is under attack, and part of his way of defending himself is to deny the most horrific acts to dissociate himself from him. This, to me, is so clear in the ways that he downplays the kidnappings and the abuse and tries to paint a picture of this family that he created. That's dissociation in itself. That's just insane to me. It's even apparent when he's referencing his abuse of his ex when he tries to deny and change the story, saying that he was defending himself from her. This dude has no grasp on reality whatsoever. But Levy said many, many people in prison have the diagnosis of antisocial personality. They're people who have limited, if any, conscience and are very narcissistic. They see the world through their own eyes and have an exploitive view toward interpersonal behavior. The kinds of statements he's making are antisocial. He won't take ownership. He's paying lip service to an apology. Everything is self-serving and self-gratifying. He also pointed out that Castro referring to the girls as victims is another way of dissociating himself from the crimes. Sir, they're your victims. Right. You were the criminal. You were the monster. That was actually you. That was you. Don't know if you remember, but that was you. You were there. Robert Weiss, who treats sex addicts at the Sexual Recovery Institute in California, was kind of saying the same things. He was not buying the sex addict defense. He said he's clearly using sexual addiction as a way to make his horrendous behavior look better. Without remorse, without empathy, without a consistent pattern of compulsive and addictive behavior that involved different settings over time, not just these particular individuals, I don't see a sex addict. I just see a psychopath and a sex offender. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Mike drop. Robert Mic Weiss. drop. The beat. Very true. RT, totally agree. Retweet. <laughs> Some of the outlandish statements made by Castro could lead many people to dismiss him as a person who had no firm handle on reality. But... But, but, but. Obviously, we know the whole background of this case, so we don't buy what he's saying in court. But, you know, there's going to be those people who do. Uh But not Mary Ellen O'Toole, a retired criminal profiler with the FBI. She said there was just a real amazing lack of empathy for the victims. But the important point here is that he's not crazy at all. In my opinion, Ariel Castro was on live TV manifesting traits of psychopathy. And psychopathy is not a mental illness. It's a personality disorder. It's distinguished by a stunning lack of conscience. No remorse or empathy for what they do. They're very arrogant individuals. She also said it was dangerous to label Castro as a monster because it suggests that sexual predators such as him are easy to identify as a threat. Which, I didn't even think of that. So that's a really good point. I didn't either. Wow. She's She's a smarty. Mm -hmm. She said people who do these horrible things don't physically look horrible. I mean, in his case, he did look pretty bad. Honestly, yeah, I did look up some pictures of him. Not good. Not good. Not cute. Not cute. But she said they fit in with their neighborhoods. They appear to live normal lives. So... The lesson is how do we spot them ahead of time so they don't get to the point that they're doing what Ariel Castro does? Well, Mary Ellen, I'll tell you. <laughs> when the police go to his house four times from four different complaints, you follow up because it probably wouldn't have gone any further.
1: And after the fourth one,
0: maybe just go inside. Just go in. Just go in. Just go just in. Go I don't care in. if he's home or not. Just go in. Just go in. I know we touched on his death a little bit, but I want to talk about the misconceptions and just kind of why it was a little bit of a gray area. The Department of Rehabilitation and Correction Operations Support Center did an entire review of his death. They were kind of under the impression that they didn't think that it was suicide because after they went through everything, they went through all of his visits from doctors, like everything that he did because they had to keep record and they had to have different people checking in on him at certain times. So they said that he had no mental health issues. He had no suicidal thoughts. He didn't leave a suicide note. They were like, we don't think that it's suicide. So they were under the impression that he died from autoerotic asphyxiation which is basically when you choke yourself to get off but like if you do it too much you'll kill yourself.
1: Oh my god, I didn't even think about that too. His mm. pants were both
0: like by his ankles. So we're going to talk about the report a little bit. He was put on mental health watch solely because of the high notoriety of the case. It had nothing to do with his mental health or anything that he said or did. He mm-hmm. was evaluated by a mental health professional In all of the days leading up to his death, he had to do a bunch of questionnaires, do some tests. Nothing, absolutely nothing came up to show that he had any signs of suicidal thoughts. There were no past behaviors or attempts of self-harm. He was found in a cell with a Bible. He had pictures of his family out. He, like I said, he was hanging on the hinge of a window of his cell by sheet wrapped around his neck, his pants and underwear pulled down to his ankles. This is where they're like, I don't know. It's fishy. So on the day of his death, he had a hearing regarding protective control placement. And he was actually really excited for this, for the possibility of being put in protective control because the prison that they would be taking him to was closer to his family. So he was like, they said he was super happy about that. And he was asking about which location they would put him at. And he was asking about receiving mail. So clearly he's thinking about future plans. He's looking forward to things, nothing that would indicate consideration of ending his life. Mm-hmm. There was also some issues because the report found that two prison guards did not fulfill all check-in rounds and they falsified records saying that they did check in and they didn't. And when they did go to check, he was dead. So that definitely made things really messy. Franklin County Coroner Paula Gorniak disputed these allegations claiming that there were zero signs Castro had been sexually stimulated. So there's your proof right there. And she was actually really mad. She was like, nobody should be saying any of these things except for me i'm the one who examined his body like i'm the only one who knows it was suicide the end but on a lighter note let's stop talking about him and let's talk about the girls today yes let's see what they up to so michelle knight who now goes by the name lily rose lee married her husband miguel on may 6th 2015 the two-year anniversary of the day she escaped wow i know right so cute Um, Gina and Amanda are good friends, but they don't keep in touch with Michelle, but they received diplomas from Cleveland high school in 2015. Okay. And they actually both came out with their own book in April of that year called hope a memoir of survival in Cleveland. And Amanda started writing this book a week into her capture by the time she escaped, she had written 1200 pages. Wow. That's Mm -hmm. wild. She would keep tallies of how many days she'd been there as well as how many times he'd raped her in hopes that if the police ever did find them, they would know how many charges to hit him with. Dang. She wanted revenge. She says facts. I know. Good for her. This is where I want to discuss the dynamic between the three girls. Amanda talked about it at the end of her book. She said, it's tougher between her and Michelle and that they're very different people, and life is taking them in different directions. She said she'll always have a bond due to what they experience, and she wishes her happiness. And Michelle kind of touches on this too in her book. She said pretty much the same thing, you know, just life was taking them different directions. She wishes them the best. Amanda and Gina go into serious detail about the brutality the abuse, how they felt, There was one point where she said, he seems angry, like he wants to hurt me as much as he can. I'm screaming and crying and beating him back, but it's useless. I'm crying and bleeding. I've been terrified he would do this. I want to die. I tried to cover myself with my clothes. We got to celebrate, he says, standing up and pulling his pants back on. That was your first time. That is absolutely horrifying. So messed up. Horrifying. That is disgusting and I feel sick. So messed up. But she was talking about how something that he did was he would kind of like pit the girls against each other and make them hate each other. Michelle really didn't touch upon this in her book. I don't know if maybe she saw things differently or she just didn't want to talk about it. She didn't want there to be like any bad blood, but... The girls did an interview with people and Gina said, I think we did like each other at one point in the beginning. Castro played mind games with them so they wouldn't trust each other. She said, toward the end, me and Amanda started to open up and talk and we became friends. Michelle and Amanda were struggling because I think Castro was playing them against each other. So I think they never got along. And something I had to mention was in this interview, they talk about how the three of them would watch Vampire Diaries every week, and then they would spend two hours after each episode discussing what would happen next week.
1: Oh my god, they're just like us.
0: I love that for them. I want to know too. I want to know what they said. but um Gina discusses the multiple depressive episodes she battled during her kidnapping and Amanda discusses the complexity of her relationship with Castro. I know we talked about how we were surprised that none of the girls had Stockholm syndrome. and I would say that Amanda, I don't think any of them had it, but Amanda definitely had like the closest thing. I think she was more confused than anything, but if she'd been there longer, it probably would have happened. Yeah. But she said that because, you know, he referred to her as his wife, um, she got so much different treatment. It was confusing for her because he was still torturing her and abusing her at the same time. But at the same time, he was like, oh, you're my wife. You know, I like you. I don't like them. Whatever. She definitely experienced some conflicting emotions when it came to him. She's jealous when he has sex with the other two women. And she said that she was just appalled at her jealousy. And she said she needed his hugs and their intimate talks. But then at the same time, she, like, fantasized about killing him. And I really uh. just think it stemmed from, like, attachment. There was nobody else. And, you know, he wasn't showing the other girls any love. So there was nothing for them to be attached to. But just, like, that little bit of love he was showing Amanda was what was messing her up. Yeah. So as you can see, her feelings toward him were very different from the other two girls very conflicting. She discusses one Thanksgiving where she got him, she like convinced him to go out and buy food so that they could have like a traditional Thanksgiving dinner together. She said, "God, I miss that feeling of being home on a lazy happy holiday, watching him sitting there with us smiling and content. It's suddenly so clear to me. He wants that feeling too. He wants that perfect little family he never had. He's created his own world and he doesn't realize it's fake." I feel sorry for him. I'm grateful that he went out of his way to make us happy. I've never felt closer to him than I do at this moment. And that just, like, breaks my heart. Like, how conflicted she was. And also, he's the father of her baby. So that's got to complicate it even more. Yeah. It's like, how is she supposed to show her daughter, I'm supposed to hate this man, he's a monster? She can't show her that. Yeah. Oh, boy. In the fall of 2018, Gina announced the creation of the nonprofit, the Cleveland Center for Missing, Abducted, Exploited Children and Adults. And so she and her cousin, Sylvia, the one who testified on her behalf, they Mm -hmm. created this foundation together and it's located on the same street where she was held captive. Wow. We'll link the website under our sources on our website. But in the same year, she became an ambassador for Northeast Ohio Amber Alerts. Which was really cool. Yes. Um, Similarly, Amanda Berry began working with the U.S. Marshals Service for its initiative Operation Safety Net, where together they were able to locate 35 missing or endangered children in one month. Wow. One month. They now have a permanent unit for that in Northeast Ohio, and they're performing these operations nationwide now, and they've helped to bring home around 400 children since last October. So not even oh my a full God. year. Wow! Amanda's now a missing persons advocate at Fox 8 News, where she joined in 2017. So if you live in Cleveland, um, I know like my dad watches it on TV, but I'm sure you've seen her on Fox News. But Lily founded Lily's Ray of Hope to support other survivors providing housing, clothing, and education assistance, among other services. So we'll go ahead and link you to all of these websites. Amazing, amazing things these girls have done. On a sad note, I do have like one teeny little update just because it just happened. Not to like take away from what we just spoke about, but in May of this year, Gina pulled over on the side of the road and another car pulled in front of her. Men got out of the car. They held a gun to her head, ordering her to get out of the car, and they went off with her car, her purse, and her credit cards. She is totally fine. Oh, God. Obviously, they stole her things, but... You scared me. I know. That's that. When I saw that, I was like, are you serious? This literally just happened? Because I couldn't believe that something like this happened to her again. But she's fine. The girls are thriving. They're doing amazing things. Good. And it's just heartbreaking that Ariel Castro isn't rotting in a prison to see it. Yeah, I do wish that he was
1: rotting. And I hate him. And I
0: think that he took the easy way out. I know. And I'm sure that's really hard for the girls to come to terms with. You made us stay in this hellhole for 10, 11 years, and you couldn't even last a month.
1: Yeah. He made them suffer in confinement. And
0: the minute he was put in confinement, he couldn't handle it. So, mm-hmm. in order for them to move on and be okay with their lives, they have to find some sort of peace. Yes. And I think that they're all doing really great now. I think the books that they've written are amazing. So if you guys want to check them out, everything will be on our website, crimeoncapping.com. All the sources will be on there as well for you guys to look through. We're going to have some photos of the house and everything that was in it, you know, where they stayed, the chains, everything. We're going to have photos of them now so you guys can take a look and just kind of see everything and get a sense of what they went through. But thank you so much for listening. I really hope you guys like this little three-parter. I'm sorry it was so long. It's just like a very important case to me and all my Cleveland peeps. Thank you guys so much for your continued
1: support. We are loving seeing all of you post us on your stories and the reviews you guys leave. It makes us so happy and it makes us want to continue doing this, of course. So if you haven't already, make sure to follow us on all of our social medias. It's just Crime on Caffeine for Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. And then if you want to go to our website, again, it's just Crime on Caffeine. If you guys are listening on Apple, don't forget to give us a review. Five stars if you're feeling nice. And then, of course, just follow us on Spotify so that you
0: guys are notified every time we upload an episode. We're in the process of getting, like, some stickers, some cards made if you guys would be interested in anything merch-wise at any point. I really want to make coffee mugs, so...
1: And I've already thought of a few different things that we can do for merch. So if you guys just go ahead and let us pop off real
0: quick, we'll get you some merch. But you need to keep sharing and putting us on blast and telling your friends and telling your coworkers and telling your family because it helps so much. And we appreciate you guys for all that you've done to help support us. And we love you. So thank you.